Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now how you hear that story largely depends on the type of childhood you experienced. For those of you, maybe the one in four women and one in seven men, who grew up in homes or situations in which the people who were assigned to take care of you either allowed or actually perpetrated the taking away of your virtue and self-worth, Jesus has a message for you today. Or for those of you who lost a parent through divorce or death, or who maybe were teased ruthlessly, or maybe just neglected and no one had time for Or those of you who grew up believing that you just never quite made the grade in the eyes of a coach, a teacher, a parent, friends, who just thought if you would just do one more thing or if you would just do it better, then people would love or accept you. Jesus has a message for you as well this morning. You are not alone in your sufferings. Jesus was not unaware. And he wasn't absent. Well, then where was he? Where was Jesus when all these things were happening to children? Well, he was at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you, crying out for you. You know, as you read the scriptures a number of times as a pastor, I have an opportunity. I reread the Bible many, many times, and you notice certain patterns, and you also notice exceptions. Fifteen times in the New Testament, Jesus is described as being at the right hand of God the Father. Ten of those times, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. Seated meaning he's accomplished his work, he's come down to earth, he's shown us what God is like, he's died for our sins, he's resurrected from the dead, and he's now finished his work, so he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ten of the fifteen times, he's seated. Four of the times he's described as simply being at the right hand of God the Father. And one time he is described as standing at the right hand of God the Father. What was happening in the scene in which he was standing? Well, a man named Stephen was on trial for his life and about to be executed for his faith, for believing in Jesus by a slow and torturous death of stoning. And Jesus at that moment was standing at the right hand of God the Father. And I take comfort in that. I find a lot of encouragement in that. And I can't tell you and I can't show you from Scripture that every time you suffered neglect or abuse or hurt or or felt left out, I can't tell you that every time you suffered any of those things, Jesus was standing. But I can tell you for sure, and whether you've come to church this morning, someone invited you to village and this is all new to you, or you've been in church for years, I can tell you for sure and for certain that one of the reasons why Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins is also for our healing and also for our healed hearts. That's one of the reasons why Easter was even important. Not just so that we go to heaven, but also that God heals our hearts and that we can live a full life. And I can also tell you without minimizing anything that any of us have experienced, that whatever happened in our lives, and even if it was incredibly traumatic, even the painful events that happened in our lives, that is not what is controlling or hurting you today as much as your interpretation of the event. In other words, if your mom or dad didn't show up at your 
grade three soccer game and you were looking for them. It's not that they didn't show up so much. It's the lie you might have believed that I'm not important or I'm not as important as the other boys or if you were hurt or wounded or beat up or told you you're worthless. It's not what happened, although that was terrible and traumatic and it shouldn't have happened. It's your interpretation of the event and what you believed as a result. So let me help you just the very beginning of this message on children and Jesus' view of children who we all are. Let me help you reinterpret those events. So if I've described you in any of what I've just said in the last three minutes, I just invite you to just bow your head and listen as I proclaim and declare over you some of God's thoughts. Would you bow your heads for a minute? I say to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your life is not a mistake. You have never been unwanted. You have never been alone. You have never been unloved. God created you out of the depth of his own existence and called you into the being at the right time and in the right place. And he has prepared a way for you to live, to heal, to thrive. And he has given up the life of his own son for you simply because he loves you. You are his privilege and his delight. You're not a burden. You're not an intrusion. You belong. And you are one of his own dear children. You are his treasure just because you are, not merely for what you can do. And Jesus is inviting you to open your heart to him so that he can fill you with his unconditional love. And he's pouring that love out upon you right now. Receive it. Accept it. Embrace it. Thank you, Jesus. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What do you think it was about children? What do you think it is about children that endears them to Jesus so much? Why does he love them so much? You see, to the disciples, the children, and the mums who were bringing the, the children to Jesus were a nuisance. Jesus was important, and the disciples had their own idea of who Jesus' time was for. It was for them, of course. It was never a waste of time for Jesus to hang out with them or go fishing or explain something to them. That was never a waste of time. And it was Jesus' time was also for the important people, which is kind of ironic because until the disciples met Jesus, none of them were important. But Jesus' time should be for the important people, the people that the good investments that can give back and contribute, reproducers. Those are the, the, the people, the rich, the wealthy, the ones that look like us. That's who Jesus' time should be for. And so the disciples rebuked the people and the, the moms, get these kids out of here. Jesus is important. We've got things to do. And Jesus rebuked the disciples. Who do you think the gospel's for? It's two groups of people. Who do you think the gospel's for? You know, if you're a guest, you, you came to village, who, who do, you, do you know that a big chunk of village church is for you? We make it actually decisions because we actually want a whole pile of people who don't know Jesus personally to hang out with us. And, and maybe uh, we could rub off on you, Jesus, and, and you and watch us in the way we live and the way we interact with each other, the way we worship. Um, maybe that would, that would bring you closer to inviting Jesus into your heart. Do you know the gospel's for you? you don't know Jesus? Those of you who've been with Jesus a long time, who is the gospel for? We've got to be very careful on this because obviously it's for us <laughs> and those that look like us. 
Those that are good investments. The gospel is for, for, for people that, that, that can give back and contribute to make our lives better, their lives better. That's who the gospel's for, right? You know, in Canada, 6% of Canada is what you'd call evangelical Christians. 4% in Vancouver, the Vancouver area, B.C., 4% of the people around you would be called evangelical Christians. There's 2.5 million people in Metro Vancouver. That means, if you just do the math, 2.4 million people that we do life with, that, that live around us, that we interact with, that we go to school with, that we go to work with, 2.4 million of the people that we're going to drive by today are facing a hopeless eternity, and only 100,000 of us actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is not a guilt trip, but those are statistics that weigh heavy, heavy on the heart of the one that we love the most, Jesus. Those are very important statistics to him. And here's a very solemn warning with no condemnation. Be very careful who you hinder from coming to Jesus. Be, 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 we have to be very careful because in, we, in North America, in B.C., in, in this area, we can become just like the Israelites. You know one of the biggest mistakes the Israelites, God's people, in the whole Old Testament, one of the biggest mistakes they made, they thought the gospel was for them. They forgot that God wanted to bless them for a reason and give them laws and bless them so that all the people around them would say, wow, what great a God the Israelites have. We want to become Israelites so we can hang out with God and have that same kind of relationship. That was the purpose of God choosing Israel. That's the the purpose of God choosing the church, that we can live our lives in such a way, the way we do our sexuality, the way we handle our money, the way we do our marriages, the, the, the way we drive, well, maybe not drive, the way, the way we drive, the way we do everything actually attracts people to Jesus Christ. Be very careful who you hinder from coming to Jesus for two ways. One is how you live, because people that don't know Jesus are watching, those of us who say we do. But also be careful with your apathy, with our apathy. And because this passage is primarily talking about children, I just want to apply this also to parents. Be very careful as parents that you don't hinder your children from coming to Jesus. And I'm not talking about coming to church. There's a difference of coming to church and coming to Jesus. And, and there's, a, there's a pendulum swing on two ways. One of the things we often do as Christian parents, we raise our children up in the church. We want them to become nice people. And go to church and not sleep with their boyfriends and girlfriends and basically turn out to be North American Christians. And a North American Christian is someone who, who kind of invites Jesus into their life because they want to go to heaven. But we're going to kind of live our life the way we want to live. We don't need more North American Christians. And it's very easy to, to raise up your children to become North American Christians and stop them from coming to Jesus. Jesus wants people who are willing to follow him. So be very careful by the way you live, by the way you interact with your spouse, by the, what you do with your time, that you don't raise your children to become just like you and not follow Jesus. And also be careful on the other side of the spectrum that you don't raise your children to be spiritual orphans because you give all of your time to the church. Because there's two pendulums. Now, I think, I personally believe we've swung the pendulum more to being narcissistic and living it all about us. And some of us were raised in a generation where our parents were never around because they were always at the church serving. And, and some, of, some of you older parents, maybe, maybe we need to write a letter to our children and invite them back to follow Jesus. And the way you do that is by writing a letter and saying, you know what, I'm sorry. There were times that I wasn't there for you because I gave my time to other people's children and I'm sorry. So make sure, be very careful who you hinder from coming to Jesus on either side of the pendulum. 
I want to get back to the text for a minute. You know, I, I, think, I think the disciples missed some of the earlier teaching. A couple of chapters earlier in chapter 18, verse 3, when the disciples were duking it out and arguing who was top dog among them, Jesus actually picks a child out of the crowd and he brings them into the midst and he stands them there and he says, listen up, boys, and listen good. Unless you, I chose you 12, I get it, you're following me, but unless you, 12, unless you turn... Unless you change, unless you 12, you followers of me, unless you repent and change the way you approach life and the way you think about life and the way you think about each other, unless you change and become like little children, you 12, you who follow me, aren't going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's an incredible statement. So let me laser into that text without, without, without blinking because it's so easy to move on to more important things just like the disciples. Unless we change and Jesus repeats it here. And he says, don't, let the, don't hinder the children from coming to me for to such, like what? To such these little children, to this type of being, to this type of personality, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So let me ask you a very important question. How much time and effort did you spend this week into becoming more like children in your faith? Becoming more like children in your relationships with God and each other? Don't look away. Don't blink. This week, how much time did you put into exercising childlike faith in your prayers? Because we have to learn that. We actually have to relearn that. Because some of us pray prayers of doubt, not prayers of faith. Do you know a child has no concept of unanswered prayer? Do you know why? Because we taught them that Jesus loves them and answers prayer. And they believed it. And then we grew up. And we unbelieved it. Because we had a couple of bumps along the way. And so how much time did you put into practicing childlike faith in your prayers? How much effort this week did you put into practicing Grudge-free forgiveness. Not just forgiveness, grudge-free forgiveness. Wiping the slate clean of someone who hurt you. How much time this week did you spend working on unbridled delight in the magic of life? Did you spend any time this week just, in, just being amazed at some of the most amazing little miracles, like a baby's first steps? Or like how a flower in the morning opens up and shows its beauty to everybody. And then at night, it retreats to itself. Isn't that amazing? Unbridled delight. And how much time this week did you spend dreaming, playing make-believe? Do you still dream? Do you still dream about your marriage, your romance, your relationships, your work? Your accomplishments. Do you dream about the kingdom? Or have you just settled in? Status quo, which is Latin for the mess we're in. Do you dream? When did you stop dreaming? You see, you see how easy it is to pass over this teaching and get on to something more important? I was supposed to get to verse 22, but we're going to stay. We're not going to get past verse 15. We're going to spend the rest of the message on the children passage. And I found it interesting that Jesus laid his hands on the children and he blessed them. And so I've titled the, the last half of my message, the second half of my message, Regressing. 
regressing to the qualities that Jesus seeks in those he blesses. And as I go through these four qualities, I've just summarized them. We're going to unpack each of the four. I want you to give yourself a rating on a scale of 1 to 10. No fives. You've got to have a spine here. No fives. Scale of 1 to 10. How do you rate on these childlike qualities that Jesus finds irresistible and loves to bless? The first quality, I reclaim and protect a childlike faith. What does that actually mean? I reclaim and I protect a childlike faith. It means that I pray as if I actually believe that my prayers will be answered. It means that I don't pray prayers that are already pre-answered, like God be with us. Where is he going to go? We, we pray that all the time. That's already answered before you pray it. Or, or pray prayers, you know, pray bold prayers, specific prayers. God protect us from what? And I get that, pray that. But what are you asking God to protect you from? Don't you say, God, protect us, and then at the end of the night, thanks for protecting us. What do you need protection from? Temptation, maybe. From a bitter heart. From going in debt. From sickness, from illness, from complacency. Ask God actually specifically. Some of us get no answers to prayer because we don't actually pray specific prayers. It means actually praying, and when you're praying, childlike faith means that while you're praying, actually envision God Almighty moving out. When I pray for unsaved people, when I pray for people that I love that don't know Jesus, I'm actually envisioning the Holy Spirit to be convicting them right then of his love, that he pours out his love right while I'm praying. That's childlike faith, and we've got to develop it, but we've got to first decide what we actually believe. That's exercising because it's been stripped away from you. Hurts and time, time of, of discouragement that strips away all of our belief and we pray prayers of doubt. And sometimes we make fun of the, the word faith movement and I get it that there's extremes there but sometimes we're the word doubt movement. And so what I'm talking about is, is not becoming weird. I'm just saying, what does God say and ask us to pray for and begin praying, exercising faith? Also, reclaiming and protecting a childlike faith also means that I explicitly trust in someone greater than myself. I listened to Pastor Jonathan's message. He was preaching a few weeks ago. I listened to that. He was talking about this implicit faith in someone greater than myself, and obviously that, that person's Jesus. But let me really unpack this for us and make it really practical. I want you all to think of a conflict that you're having right now with somebody. Don't nudge them. <laughs> Think of a conflict right now in business, in ministry, with someone you live with, a conflict you're having right now. Let's test this. Do you believe that God cares about that conflict and has a better way of handling it than you? Yes or no? Okay. How would a person who does believe Jesus cares about that and has a better way of handling it handle it? How would a person who does not believe God cares about this situation respond and handle it? Now, based on my last two answers, what do I really believe? Because if I handled a conflict with my wife or a business partner or my children or whatever, if I handled it a way that a person who doesn't believe that God cares and has a better way of handling it, then the truth is I don't believe that God cares about that. That's the truth. It re reveals the way we pray, reveals what we believe. So the question then becomes, and I do this all the time, I have to ask myself, how am I responding? A way of a faith or a way of doubt? And when I'm responding in the way of doubt, I've got another decision. Am I willing to believe that God cares about this situation? And am I willing to trust it in his care? Because I can't change another person, and neither can you. And churches split and marriages split because we think we can change other people. Countries split. Partly because we don't believe that God has a better way of handling it and spending any time on our knees or asking him. And it means that I don't have to have it all figured out. You know the children don't have it all figured out and they keep living by faith? 
And I'm not saying have blind faith and stick your head in the sand. I'm just saying you don't have to have it all figured out to keep walking in faith. You know, I was, I was young and arrogant in, in Bible college, and I remember thinking, if I ever find something in Scripture that I can't come up with an answer, I'm going to throw away my faith. Do you know how arrogant that is? If I, Kenda, cannot figure out some big theological concept of God, toss it. That's crazy. And I'm not saying don't look for answers. Of course, look for answers. But de developing and protecting a childlike faith means that when I don't have it all figured out, I still go by what I believe to be true, and I keep living that way. And in fact, I live as if what I believe was actually true. That's my de personal definition of faith. Living as if what I believe is actually true. So how are you doing on that? How are you doing on reclaiming and protecting a childlike faith? Scale of 1 to 10. Give yourself a number. Text it to thisisvillagechurch.com. <laughs> I get the hesitation because praying in faith is hard. Praying in faith means that there's real risk of looking foolish sometimes. There's real tough questions that we have to answer sometimes. People will make fun of you if you pray in faith. People might even mock you if they pray in faith. And sometimes it's just painful. I know what it's like. We know what it's like to hold, hold a 12-year-old child and try and explain, why is God not healing me? It is hard sometimes. Some people think that Christianity is easy. It's not easy. You know what would be easy? What would be easy is giving up and just saying, I guess that's just the way it is, and not praying in faith, not taking the risk. But I can also tell you that when Bonnie and I have changed our prayers to praying prayers of faith and authoritatively declaring what we understand God to instruct us to authoritatively declare without waving him around like a cosmic credit card, without demanding from God, but by praying in faith, we've seen many more prayers answered, specific prayers answered, that I never would have believed was possible when we prayed prayers of doubt. And that's for those of us who have a relationship with God. How about for those of you who might be guests that don't, this is kind of new to, don't have a relationship with God. First of all, we're thrilled that you're here, thrilled that you're spending time with us this morning. But here we come to the, what we call the offense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the offense of the gospel of Jesus Christ is you're completely powerless to save yourself. You've, we've blown it. We've made mistakes. God calls them sins. You and I have made mistakes, and we can't make it right, some of us. In fact, all of us. And here's the dilemma. Even if you could pay back all the people you've hurt, you can't pay back God. We've offended him. We've, we've rejected him. We've hurt other people. We've, we've done things. And, and even if you never do a bad thing again, that's not going to make up for the bad things you've already done. You need a savior. A murderer doesn't get off murder just because he buys the pays for a hospital wing. You can never do enough good to rewrite your own. We need a savior. So the question to those of you who might not know Jesus, maybe you've hung around with us for a while now, maybe today's the day, would you be willing to ask God to forgive you rather than you try to make it right? Would you be willing to ask God to fill you with his unconditional love and value rather than you trying to prove to God, to your grade two teacher, to your parents, to anyone else that you have worth? Would you be willing? See, unless you change, turn, repent, and become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I get the fight there too. There was a time in my life I really believed that I'm, no one's going to tell me how to live. Nobody's going to tell me how to live, including God. And this sounds crazy, but there was a time that I actually knew I was going to hell and I was okay with that because nobody's going to tell me what to do. It sounds crazy now. I had to change, turn, repent, become like a child and say, God, I need you. 
Scale of one to ten, how are you doing there? Secondly, I practice grudge-free forgiveness, and sometimes I even forget. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, Mark preached on this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to regurgitate it. In fact, listen to it online. Great message. But, but don't make it your goal to forgive and forget. See, one of the beautiful things about children is they've got grudge-free forgiveness. They might not forget. But don't make it your goal to forgive and forget because that might not be possible. At this, Make it your goal to understand and forgive. That's what God wants us to do. See, see, God's omniscient, he doesn't actually forget. He just doesn't remember it against us. He doesn't, when he sees me, he doesn't bring up, oh, Ken, that's, that's Ken, the guy that screwed up, the guy that sinned. Um, forgiving, forgiving means that I choose when I look at you to no longer judge you according to how you hurt me. doesn't mean I forgot, but I look at you as you, a person who God died for, lives and uh, loves and lives in. And you know what the beauty is? Sometimes you actually even do forget. When you begin to forgive on a regular basis, I forgive people all the time. I hope people forgive me. Sometimes you actually even forget. A guy called, emailed me last week. His name, I'll call him Bob. His real name was Will. He emailed me and said, uh, he said, you know, a number of years ago, um, I remember you saying that I hurt you, and I, but you never told me what, and I never apologized. Uh, what was it? So I can apologize. I want to make things right. And the honest truth is, I, I emailed him back. I don't know. I, I just have no idea. So sometimes you actually can forget. But my point is, we most of us know now what forgiveness means. Question is, scale of 1 to 10. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on the forgiveness quotient? Scale of 1 to 10. One meaning, I'm not going to forgive. They Oh, they got to pay first. They got to be sorry first. Or to forgive, yeah, like a child, grudge-free forgiveness. Do you know that you can forgive the people in your life today? There, there's no good reason why you're going to go to sleep with bitterness today except pride. That's not a great reason. Children don't have pride. We have to teach them to be prideful. Grudge-free forgiveness. Number three, I reserve moments of unbridled delight in the wonders of life. How are you doing on that one? Scale one to ten. Bonnie and I have a granddaughter now. She's one year old. Her name is Justice Sequoia. You know that that little girl doesn't do one thing for us? If she comes over, she never brings money. She doesn't help us clean up. In fact, she makes most of the mess. She, she doesn't say thank you for anything. She doesn't actually talk. But if she did, just, just for her personality, I bet you she wouldn't say thank you for a lot of the things we do. In fact, she, she often demands, she points to what she wants. She doesn't actually even ask or say please and thank you. She, she throws her food on the floor sometimes. She poops in the diapers we buy her. And uh, we get the, we, when she comes over for a sleepover, which we love having, we get a sleepover once in a while. Sometimes she wakes us up in the middle of the night and wants something to eat or drink. And the other thing she does is she, every chance she can, she pulls out all my post-it notes from my post-it dispenser and just puts them on the floor. You know what I love about her? <laughs> Her unbridled delight at all the little miracles that you and I miss every day. Like that a rubber ball actually bounces. That's amazing. She finds delight in that. She squeals. We take her for a walk and, and she, she looks at the bup-ups, which is her talk for puppy. And she gets a kick out of that. She gets a thrill out of the wind on her face. Or the force of gravity when you take her in a swing. Or the magic of a hug. Or a cuddle. Or a smile. How are you and I doing on just unbridled delight in the little miracles of the day? You see, that's very practical, especially when you're going through a real tough time. When my wife and I and our family was going through a couple of real challenges a number of years ago, real challenges in areas of health, 
one of my favorite places to go was the ocean. You know why I go to the ocean? I call it ocean therapy. The power of God. It brings perspective. The power of God to create the world. He can handle what we're going through. Ocean therapy. You know what some of us should practice when we're thinking of going through a separation or a divorce? I call it leaf therapy. Take a leaf down from a tree and look at it. Do you know there's little veins in the leaf? There's veins in the leaf that get life from the trunk. And a leaf, it's got seasons. It's got seasons of beauty and then it's got seasons of, of, of seeming death. And it seems like there's nothing there. And then in spring, new life again. It's called leaf therapy. Or just remembering why you fell in love in the first place. Just the wonders of someone actually loves me and wanted to spend time with me. Just leaf therapy changes everything. Not everything, changes a lot. Or it's one of the reasons why we should take a Sabbath rest. Play. What does children do? Playtime. Playtime. Some of us don't play. You know, I, I just recently bought, I was wondering if I should tell you this, I just recently bought a third motorcycle, and before you think you're paying me too much, just let me explain. I don't actually, <laughs> I don't actually need a third motorcycle, and I'm going to sell one of them, but you know why I bought it? I need something to work on this winter in my garage because my hobbies are ministry and children, and our kids are gone and stuff, but we do a lot of ministry together. But I actually need something to get me out of my office, out of working, out of ministry, into my garage, and do just something, just rebuild a bike. So it needs a lot of work, and I'm going to do that. It's playtime. I need something to play. Part of my life plan is creating something that is just for me to play. But some of us grew out of that, didn't we? We're too mature for that. No, we're too dumb. And we've got nothing left. And you know what happens when you've got no playtime is you begin to, re to resent. You resent God, you resent other people because you haven't put anything into your, play into your life for yourself. Now, some of us got too much playtime, I get it. <laughs> Rain you back in. Some of you actually got to stop playing because play and, and recreation only has meaning if it's retreating and recreating from something. Vacation's only got meaning if you need a rest. If you're vacationing all the time, maybe if you're vacation, you should go to work. That's a new thought. <laughs> Lastly, I dream. Qualities that Jesus loves in children, he dream, they dream. I dream. I imagine with God what could be and what is far more abundantly than all I ask, think, or imagine could actually look like. Do you dream? Jesus rose from the dead. Everything can always be different. Do you still dream? Would you be willing to dream again? And just stop living a life, same old, same old as it is. Stop thinking that this is just the way your marriage is going to be. Get some counseling. Go on a retreat. Buy some roses. Buy some flowers or buy a motorcycle. Do something to revive your marriage or your family or your health. Do you still dream of what could be or have you just settled? You know, children have this wonderful term. It's make-believe. They believe, they envision, they imagine. And there is a theological principle in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says... Um, now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly, don't, to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we think, ask, or even imagine. One of the problems is we don't imagine anything anymore. God actually wants us to dream. He wants us to, to envision with him what could be in all these areas of our lives. And dream and imagine what if the limit to your prayers is, be, is the limit to which you are willing to imagine. And I'm not pushing it to the extreme in weirdness. But God said to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we think, ask, or even imagine. Some of us aren't even asking the basics. A lot of us aren't even imagining. You know, one of the beauties of being a part of a church family like this, we're imagining big things. We're imagining what could be. 
We're imagining what could be if we, if we buy the land and build a ministry center, a training center. We don't need the land because we need the land. It's, it's to build a training center to raise up leaders to go across Canada with what we're experiencing here. And frankly, some of you maybe move to one of those cities and help plant a village there or whatever the deal is. My point is, are you willing to imagine because that is one of the qualities that Jesus finds irresistible in children. Some of us have lost that because we've been hurt. That's why we've got to reclaim and regress to the qualities that Jesus loves. I'm going to pray two prayers. One for those of you who might want to invite Jesus to be leader, savior of your life. And then pray a prayer over those of us who might need to reclaim some of the gifts of being a child. Lord Jesus, what I heard this morning makes sense. I can't do it on my own and I can't make things right. And I believe that you love me. I believe that you died for me. And I believe I've got some things in my life that you would call sin, mistakes, failures that I can't make right. And so I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. I ask you to heal my heart. I know there's some things that others have done to me that hurt. And I've blamed you and I've blamed them. I've been bitter. So I ask you to Forgive me for my sins and heal me from the sins of others. I ask you to come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I invite you to be leader and Lord. And I ask you to show me the next steps that I can live a life that's pleasing to you like children. And the second prayer is for all of us. For this reason, we bow our knees before you, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. Grant us out of the rich treasury of your glory to be strengthened with mighty power in our deepest being by the Holy Spirit, indwelling our innermost being and personalities. May Christ actually dwell in our hearts through faith. Help us to be deeply rooted and founded securely in love that we may have the power to apprehend and grasp with all God's devoted people the experience of that love, the breadth and length and height and depth of it that we might really come to know practically through experience for ourselves the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience that we may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become bodies wholly filled and flooded with God himself. Now to you who by the action of your power at work within us are able to carry out your purposes and do superabundantly far over and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. For Jesus, I think the children was a bit of a break for him. I hope this morning was a bit of a break for you. Got one little announcement, um, it's not really related to my message, but sort of. Um, on June 17th, we're going to be holding a Freedom Session facilitator training. And this is for those of you who are relatively healthy <laughs> and would like to, are interested in becoming trained as a Freedom Session facilitator or a facilitator apprentice. And on May 29th, you can register for the training. This doesn't mean that you will be a Freedom Session facilitator, but it means that we'll train you, and uh, if you are interested, that's your next step. It's going to cost you 10 bucks. Register on May 29th. It's on our website um, if you're interested in that ministry. Have a great Sunday. God bless. See you next week.